morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter 15. We're going to be reading from there this morning. In John 15, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And it says, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that, you may, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So I am the true vine, said our Lord Jesus, and my Father is the gardener. These are the words that he used to open this passage that we're reading this morning. And then he goes on to instruct those listening to remain in him. And if they don't remain in him, then they won't be able to bear fruit. Figurative language is a powerful tool for those who know how to use it well. In just a few simple words and a short phrase, a whole world of meaning can be unleashed in our minds. And some some simple phrases that are figurative that we might know today are phrases like curious as a cat or busy as a bee or brave as a lion. When we hear somebody described as busy as a bee, we know that that person is not a literal bee buzzing back and forth, or when we hear somebody described as curious as a cat, we know that they haven't turned into a cat and are curious, searching things. But we understand that there's imagery being used in those phrases to help us understand something deeper that's going on. When we hear somebody described as busy as a bee, we know that it refers to that person's busyness, going back and forth, not in the literal sense that they are a bee. And figurative language is designed to do that very thing, to take imagery, something we all understand, something that is very familiar to us, and help us see a deeper meaning of something else. And this is what Jesus is doing in this passage. He is using figurative language to help his disciples understand something very important. 
And he didn't need to explain the imagery to them because they would have understood what these images were. So what was Jesus trying to get them to understand using this imagery that was so important? So let's start with the vine. Jesus said, I am the true vine, another one of the many I am statements found in John's gospel. Planting and cultivating fruit that grows on vines was a very common thing in the Mediterranean world where Jesus lived. And when people heard this imagery, the first thing they probably would have thought of is grapes growing on a vine in a vineyard. The vine is what provides the nutrients to the branches to grow the fruits. And without the vine, nothing would grow and everything would die. And then next, Jesus said that the Father is the gardener. The gardener, or depending on your translation, it might say vine dresser or vine grower. But the point is that the gardener is one who prunes and cleans the vines and the branches so that they can bear more and more fruit. If a vineyard was not flourishing, it was the responsibility of the gardener or the vine dresser to cultivate the growth and flourishing of the fruit. And then Jesus says to remain in him and that if no one, no one can bear fruit unless they remain in him. Remain, that word, can also be translated as abide or dwell or something similar to that. And it creates this picture of a close union with someone or cleaving ourselves to someone or something. The same way that a, a husband and wife have a union together and cleave themselves to one another. Or the same way that a family abides with one another and cleaves themselves to each other. To abide or remain with someone or something in this instance is to find your home in someone or something. To find your anchor, your place of refuge, your place of total and complete dependence upon someone or something. So that's what that word remain causes us to think about. And then the image of bearing fruit once again goes back to the image of the vine and the, the vineyard. For fruit to grow on the branches, they had to remain or abide on the vine. And if the branches were bad and not bearing fruit, then the gardener would come and cut them off. And they had to be cut off because if you let bad branches stay on the vine, they would endanger the health of the whole entire crop. For the branches that were healthy and growing fruit, the gardener would come and prune them or clean them so that they would continually produce more and more fruits and yield a harvest. Now the disciples listening to this would have understood this imagery that Jesus used. And while the imagery might be a little foreign to us, unless you are a gardener or a vineyard owner, it would have been at home in their minds. And while they understood the imagery, now they had to understand the deeper point that Jesus was trying to get them to see. So what was this deeper point? Well, first, Jesus said he is the true vine, not a vine or one of many vines. And this is what it says in the NIV version. If you're reading other translation, it leaves out the word true and just says the vine. But the point is still the same regardless. Just like the vine is the source of life for the branches to grow fruits, Jesus is the only true source of life 
Just like vines provide nutrients for the branches to grow and flourish, so Jesus is our vine and source of life that provides everything we need to grow and bear fruits in our lives. And just like our bodies need air to remain alive, Jesus is the air that we need to be alive towards God. And just like the vines and branches need someone to prune them and clean them, so followers of Jesus need someone to come and prune and clean their hearts. Now the good news is that this is not up to us. This is the Father's job. The branches cannot prune themselves. If they were left to themselves, they would just become a complete mess and everything would just be chaos and destruction. So the gardener, and in this sense the father, is the one who comes and initiates and causes the growth of fruits in us as we abide on the vine who is Jesus. And it's just like it says later in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about how some have planted seeds, some have watered them, but God is the one who causes the growth. And then Jesus told his disciples that they were already clean because of the word that he had spoken to them. But then he tells them to remain in him because they will not be able to bear fruit otherwise. So what does Jesus mean by this? What did he mean when he said, you are already clean, but remain in me. You are already clean, but keep bearing fruit. When the disciples heard the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God, they believed and they followed Jesus. And having believed, they were made clean. But Jesus wasn't interested in them just simply believing once and then just stopping there. He wasn't interested in them having the attitude in themselves of saying, all right, I believed, I'm good to go, I can just relax now. That attitude is not real faith. Jesus wanted them to continue in the faith, to continue believing, to keep on trusting in Jesus. And this is a big theme throughout the Gospel of John. When the Gospel of John talks about believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus, he's not talking about just a one-time faith that stops and doesn't go anywhere else. When John writes about believing in Jesus, he's talking about an ongoing believing in Jesus. He's talking about an ongoing faith and trust in O Jesus. Yes, when we look at Jesus, we believe and trust in who he is and what he's done, but the kind of faith that we learn about in the Gospel of John is not a faith that just stops there, but a faith that looks at who Jesus is, what he's done, and then says, because of who you are, because of what you've done, I want to follow you in trust and obedience with all of my life. And this is what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand when he said that they were already made clean, but now remain in me so that you can bear fruit. It's the same kind of concept that James wrote about in his epistle where he said that faith without works is dead. So it is that faith that doesn't produce fruit is a dead faith in the same way that a branch that doesn't produce fruit is a dead branch. And in the same way that branches which do not bear fruit will be removed and eventually burned, so will those who do not produce fruit for the kingdom of God. As I already mentioned, branches that do not bear fruit had to be cut off because if they didn't, they would endanger the whole crop. 
people who do not produce the kind of fruit that God is looking for will ultimately end up being removed from the family of God and from the very presence of God himself. In the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sin, death, or evil of any kind. And those who produce the fruit of sin, death, and evil instead of the fruit of the Holy Spirit will not have a place in this kingdom. The disciples who persevere in bearing fruit are those who persevere and prove that they are disciples. And those who prove that they are disciples are those who prove that their faith is real faith. Now, this is not teaching a works salvation. Rather, it is teaching what real faith looks like and what it doesn't look like. And this is also not teaching that we have to be perfect in bearing fruit and that if we sin, that means that we're just totally cut off without hope. And we know this because in 1 John, John is writing to a believing community and encouraging them that they are in fact abiding in the truth and in Jesus. And it's the false teachers among them that are actually headed towards destruction. So keeping that in mind, in 1 John 2.1, John writes that if anyone sins, Jesus is our advocate with the Father, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So I say this to say that when the Bible teaches that those who produce the fruit of the kingdom of God will inherit the kingdom of God, it does not mean we are expected to be sinless. But it does mean that if we do sin, we will go to Jesus to find forgiveness of our sins and cleansing from our sins if we are abiding in him. But then the question remains, what does it mean to abide? Is it just a matter of praying every day and reading our Bibles every day? These are certainly important habits that shouldn't be ignored, but Jesus answers this question for us in this passage. In verse 10, Jesus tells his disciples that if they want to remain in his love, then they need to obey his commands. And then in verse 12, Jesus gets even more specific when he says that his command is to love one another the same way that he has loved us. If disciples want to abide in Jesus and produce fruit in their lives that look like him, they cannot do it if they do not love one another by laying down their lives for one another just like Jesus did. For Jesus, abiding is intertwined with obeying. Specifically, obeying by laying down our lives for one another. Abiding is not done in isolation. For a disciple to remain in Jesus, the only way that can be done is by being in community with other believers, loving one another as Jesus did for us. Why? Because it is only in community with God's people that disciples can express their faith through love, which Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, that that's all that matters. And it is only in community of worship that the growth and cultivation of fruit can happen by God working through his people through the Holy Spirit. 
This is why fellowship with believers in a worshipful community is so important. One of my college professors used an illustration with this one time that really has stuck with me over the years. So sometimes we think of Christian fellowship, we think of getting together for a Bible study, prayer, or playing games, or just laughing together, or enjoying each other, and those are all good, and we should do those things. But it can be better for us to think of Christian fellowship in terms of none other than the Lord of the Rings. If you have read the book or seen the movie, you see how the characters of Frodo, Sam, Mary Pippin, Aragorn, and others are on a mission together to destroy the ring that came into Frodo's possession. And throughout this mission, they had to depend on each other, they had to rely on each other, and they had to help carry each other to accomplish the mission. And all of them, by the end of the mission, were not the same people as when they started the mission. They were changed forever because of their experiences and the love that they developed for one another throughout their mission. If any one of them had tried to complete this mission on their own, it would have failed, and the whole world would have been doomed. Now, this is the kind of Christian fellowship we all need to stay on mission together and to help one another remain and abide in Jesus. By obeying Jesus' command to love one another as he loved us, we bear each other's burdens and we help carry each other to the finish line. The same way, to use another Lord of the Rings reference, in The Return of the King, when Sam carried Frodo up Mount Doom when Frodo could not have any strength more on his own. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I encourage you to go watch the movie. It's a very powerful scene that will stir your heart. But by loving one another in this way, this is how we remain in Jesus and abide in his love. And it all starts with Jesus' love for us. When we know how loved we are by Jesus, we can express that love towards one another. As John wrote later in, in his letter to 1 John, we learn that whoever does not love in this way does not know God. But whoever knows God has been born of him and will love people with a love that looks like Jesus. Jesus is the vine that is the source of our life. The Father is the gardener that prunes and cleans our hearts so that we can bear more fruit. And we are the branches that bear the fruit. And we could also say that the church is like the vineyard where all of this is cultivated and will eventually spread throughout all of creation until the day that Jesus comes back to make all things new. So what does this all mean for us today? As we look on this passage and reflect on it, I believe that there is an important principle that we can draw out from this passage. And I believe the Bible is, is more than just a book of principles, but nonetheless, I, I do believe that there is a very important principle that we need to pay attention to from this passage. And this is the principle. We will produce the fruit of whoever or whatever we are abiding in to give us life. We will produce the fruit of whoever or whatever we are abiding in to give us life. 
how do we know what we are abiding in? We know what we're abiding in by the object of our love and by the fruit displayed in our life. Who or what we primarily love is where we abide, and we will produce fruit that is consistent and characteristic of where our hearts are abiding. There's an author named James K. Smith. He wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom, and in there he says this, Human beings are fundamentally lovers. That is, we are not primarily thinking things or believing animals, but rather desiring agents with a passional orientation to the ultimate, to a vision of the kingdom. What he's saying there is that we are formed, we are shaped, not just by the things that we take in our minds, not just by the information that we gather and have stored up in our minds. We're not simply formed and shaped by what we say we believe, but we're primarily formed, we're primarily shaped by the things we love, by the things our hearts desire, by the things our hearts pursue and seek after. That is what primarily shapes us. And then later he goes on to say, The question is not whether we love, but what we love. I believe that you could also reword that quote by saying the question is not if we will abide, but in what or in whom are we abiding. We will abide no matter what. So the question is not are we abiding, the question is what are we abiding in? And there are many people and things out there that try to be vines for people, but end up just being false vines. And there are many false vines that we can easily attach ourselves to without even thinking about it sometimes, without even realizing it. And before we know it, we have bad fruit being produced in our lives. And I'd like us to look briefly this morning at three examples of false vines to help us better understand the true vine, Jesus. One of these false vines that we can attach ourselves to is the false vine of wealth. Why do we attach ourselves to the false vine of wealth? Well, because of the, the so-called securities that wealth promises us. Because of the vision of the good life that it casts before us. And what happens when we attach ourselves to this vine? We produce the fruit that comes from this vine. Fruits that can manifest itself like selfishness and greed and pride. We produce the fruit of discontent because when we attach ourselves to the vine of wealth, it causes us to want more, more, more. And if we attach ourselves to this vine, it's going to be impossible for us to produce the fruit that's consistent with Jesus because Jesus calls us to be sacrificial and to give of our surplus to help those in need. In 1 John 3.17, it says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? <coughs> Excuse me. When we let our hearts abide in the pursuit of wealth, it also often produces fear and anxiety. Because the more we have, 
the more we're afraid of losing it. And the more we're afraid of losing it, the more measures and steps we take to try to keep it and preserve it and protect it. We try to preserve these things because we think that they are giving us the life that we want. Now, in saying this, I certainly recognize that many people would probably rather be wealthy than poor. And if we were given a choice to struggle with not enough or more than enough, many of us would probably choose the latter option. But it would do us well to remember also the warnings in Scripture about the dangers of wealth. <coughs> in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells us the parable of the sower. And when Jesus later explains this parable to his disciples, one of the examples he gives to help them understand the seed that was choked by the thorns and the weeds is the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things. When we have worries in life, we can often think that having wealth will take those worries away. But if we're not careful, our hearts can end up being attached and abiding in that wealth. And then it will be very easy for us to be like the rich young ruler who had great wealth but had to leave Jesus' presence very sad because he didn't want to give away all that he had. Now, this is not a call for everybody to become poor, but there is a prayer in the Bible that I think can help us have a better understanding of a good place to be in relation to this. And that prayer comes from Proverbs 30, 8 through 9. And it says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So that's one false find is wealth. And another false find that we can often attach ourselves to in today's world is the false find of social media. The false find of social media promises us things like belonging and acceptance and being liked. But often these promises fall short. And when we let our hearts abide in the false find of social media, they fall short because the realities of the social media world are anything but reality. And I understand that social media has been used for good and can be used for good, and there are many people here that probably have to use social media for their jobs. And that's not what I'm trying to refer to this morning. But what I am trying to bring our attention to this morning when I talk about social media being a false vine is that if we always find ourselves going on social media, and we always find ourselves feeling ashamed because our lives don't measure up with the lives that we see on display, or if we always find ourselves being filled with anger and rage and outrage because of the, the news and the stories that we see, which are actually designed to make us angry so that we keep coming back. Or if we go on it and we constantly feel like we have to engage in arguments and debates because we think that social media arguments and debates can actually solve anything, or that our own two cents are going to be what settles the score. 
If we go on social media and constantly find these things in ourselves, then that should at the very least indicate to us that something is not right. And there's a very strong possibility that our hearts are abiding in the wrong place. If we constantly use social media, we find the fruit that, we, that is being produced in our lives to be the fruits of things like anger, depression, anxiety, outrage, hopelessness, loneliness, then it should cause us to ask ourselves, where is my heart abiding? So then the last falsifying that I would like to talk about this morning <coughs> is the falsifying of success. When we hear that word, what do we think about? Most of us, when we hear the word success, probably think success in relation to a job or a career or some sort of goal achievement. And for many of us, success, we think of bigger equals better. Bigger houses, bigger businesses, bigger paychecks, bigger numbers, bigger churches, and so on and so on. And the false vine of success is closely intertwined with the false vine of wealth. And there's nothing inherently wrong with owning a big house, with having a growing business, with getting a raise at work and getting a bigger paycheck, with churches growing in number. But the problem comes is when we take that idea of bigger is better and equate that with success. When we attach ourselves to that false vine, it produces bad fruit in us because it causes us to pursue after things that in the end will ultimately not matter. And this is illustrated for us in the parable of the rich young fool, or the rich fool that Jesus told in Luke 12. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus sets the stage for that story by declaring to everybody listening that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. And then he tells the story of a landowner whose land produced abundantly. And then when he had no more room to store all of his crops and goods, he said to himself, I will build bigger and better storehouses so I can lay up all my crops and goods for years to come. And he had so much laid up that he could just eat, drink, and be happy for the rest of his life. Now, many of us might see somebody like that today and think that he's a successful person. He has lots of money, he used his resources well, and he has enough goods stored up to where he's set for life. But then the parable takes a different turn. In verse 20 it says, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus said it will be the same for everyone who stores up treasures on earth but is not rich towards God. When we attach ourselves to the false vine of earthly success, this is what it does to us. It causes us to be rich and store up treasures on heaven, but it takes away our eyes from wanting to be rich towards God. And true success is being rich towards God. So we can be hugely successful in the world's eyes, but in the end, we are standing face to face before God. He's not going to be impressed with any of our earthly successes. But the thing that he's going to be looking for is the fruit of Christ in us. So now that we've looked at some of these false finds, 
that deceitfully promise life, we need to think about how do we redirect our hearts whenever we find ourselves becoming attached to these false binds? How do we redirect our hearts to make sure that we are abiding in Jesus, the true vine? Wealth, social media, and success are three false vines that promise us a good life but fail to deliver. But this is by no means an exhaustive list. There are many false vines out there that try to promise us life but fail to deliver. A major reason why any of us will attach ourselves to some of these false vines is because we are looking for love, belonging, and acceptance. And because of the sinfulness of our hearts, we often go looking for those things in all the wrong places. We think that if we could only be wealthier, if we could be active and interesting on social media, if we could only be successful, then we will be loved and accepted. But as we've already mentioned, those vines will produce fruit in us that will lead us away from the real kind of love and acceptance that we need. The statement is true that is often attributed to St. Augustine that says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Abiding in Jesus and attaching ourselves to him as the true vine is the only way we can produce fruit that is consistent with a true and good life. And to direct our hearts to abide in Jesus, it starts with believing and trusting in his love for us and finding our identity in that love. In John 15, 9, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus loves us. This is a simple truth that we have learned since we were children. This is a simple truth that we sing about and teach our children. Yet I'm convinced that it's still one of the hardest things for us to believe and accept. In the same way that a child will struggle to find peace and rest and security in a home that is filled with anger and bitterness and instability, it will be hard for us to rest in God's love if we're always thinking of God as someone who is constantly angry with us, waiting to condemn us, always pointing the finger at us, and is ready to strike us down the moment that we sin. That is not the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to eat and dine with sinners. He came to the unrighteous, not the righteous. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to set free the captive. He came to a dying world filled with dying people and he loved them so much that he willingly took on the death and punishment that we deserved so that we could be forgiven. He did this so that we could find forgiveness of our sins and so that we wouldn't have to fear condemnation, but instead can serve him and worship him out of freedom and love. Jesus loves you. He died for you. I know for many of us that truth can be a struggle to believe, 
But abiding in Jesus starts with trusting in that simple truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But then we need to remember that Jesus said to remain in his love and that we remain in his love by keeping his commands, specifically the command to love one another. It starts with trusting in his love for us and finding our identity in that love, but we are not called to stay there. We are called to be a manifestation of that love towards one another. We can talk all day long about how we need to trust in God's love for us, and we can even think that all we need is God's love. We don't need anyone or anything else. But we also need to remember that it would be difficult for us to maintain a belief in God's love for us if we are not physically manifesting that love towards others and others towards us. Yes, all we need is God, but God wants to reveal himself to us by working through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we are called to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. As God's people display the love of God towards each other, this is how we help one another remain in his love and abide in Jesus. In the same way that the paralyzed man's friends brought him to Jesus and had enough faith in Jesus to lower him through the roof so that he could be healed, so we too, as we abide in Jesus together, can help others come to Jesus and remain in Jesus. It starts with his love for us, but then it takes a community of God's people doing together the things that Jesus did. This is why small groups can be a good thing. If you're in a small group, I encourage you to think about how you can together do the things that Jesus did. And if you're not in a small group, or maybe you've tried small groups and you're struggling to find connection, first I want to say don't give up on trying to connect with people. But also want to say start where you are, in your family. Think about how you and your family can do together the things that Jesus did. Or maybe you can call up a friend, or two, or three, and say, hey, do you want to go help with me at this soup kitchen? Or do you want to donate clothes to the homeless shelter? Or do you want to be involved in this prison ministry with me? It takes a community of God's people doing the things that Jesus did together to help us abide in his love. As God's people obey his commands to love one another as he loved us, we will be abiding in Jesus and God will bring forth fruits in our lives from the Holy Spirit abiding in us. In closing, in John 15, 11, Jesus said that he told these things to his disciples because he wanted them to have joy and he wanted their joy to be complete. Joy is different than happiness. Happiness is dependent on our circumstances, but joy is something that is not as temporal as happiness. Joy is something that can abide even in unhappy situations. We are all anxious about the direction that our world is going. We are all anxious about the world around us, especially parents of young children, especially parents of 
teens that are graduating and about to go off on their own. So how do we have this joy? How do we find this joy? By abiding in Jesus and producing the fruit that looks like him in every facet of our lives. How do we abide? By trusting in Jesus and obeying his commands, by laying down our lives for one another in community with each other. Growing fruit is a process, and it's often a very slow process. And we have to remember that. We also need to remember that growing fruit is not up to us. Over time, as we seek to abide in Jesus, God will be the one to bring out the fruits in us. And over time, we will have a deeper abiding joy. And one day when Jesus comes back and makes all things new, our joy will be made fully complete as we present to God the fruit of Christ in us, our hope for glory. And as I finish, I'd like to read to you a couple of quotes from a man named Dallas Willard who talks about these ideas in a much more articulate way than I probably ever will be able to. And he writes about, we are called to bear fruit in every good work that we do. And so I want to read these quotes to you as we, as we end the service today as something significant to think about. The first one is kind of short, and the second one is a little long. But first, Dallas Willard says, Your work is the total amount of lasting good that you will accomplish in your lifetime. That might include your job, but for many of us, our families will be the largest part of the lasting good we produce. And then he goes on to say, Our work may be of many kinds, it might include having and raising children, developing good personal relations, being artistically creative, leading politically, working in the church of Jesus Christ to spread the truth, building houses, running trains, doing all the necessary work available to human beings as they live together in this world to produce what is good. But regardless of our specific work, the real challenge to every person's faith is that we do everything for the glory of God, even in the smallest actions of our days. And this will certainly entail making sure we do not sacrifice our families to our ministry or jobs. And this last part is what I hope we have ears to hear. Here is a truth you must never forget. God is more interested in your life than he is in any other things listed above. He's more interested in the person you are becoming than in your work or your ministry or your job. Let's pray together. Father, you love us. You sent your son Jesus to be our savior, to die for us. And Lord, when we put our faith in him, you cleanse us, you forgive us, you bring us into your family. But Lord, you also call us to remain in you, to abide in you. And Lord, we can't do that by ourselves. I pray that you would empower all of us by your Holy Spirit to love one another as you have loved us. And Lord, that by your Spirit, you would bring forth fruit in our lives so that we would prove to be your disciples 
and that you would be glorified in all of this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand up together as we sing of God's love.